Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode five of The Mechanism, part of the Calling All Beings podcast network. I'm your host, Davey Johnston, and I have with you today my co-host and good friend, Ash. How's it going, Davey? Good to be back. Very well, indeed. Thank you. It's been a little while. As always, it has. So one of the things that um, we said when we started this podcast is that we're probably not going to be able to commit to do one every single week and possibly not even every single month as we have busy lives. But uh, here we are again talking about our next topic. And our topic today is going to be A, B, C's and D's. We thought that after we'd done our framing episodes where we talked about the paranormal umbrella, talked a little bit about ourselves, we'd start to dig into some of those wonderful topics that uh, came up under that paranormal umbrella that was so wonderfully drawn by my children and added to by our uh, fans and listeners out there in Twitter and podcast land. So yeah, ABCs, when you start, you should begin with ABC. And in this case, ABC stands for Alien Big Cats. Now, I want to make it absolutely clear that this isn't the suggestion that there are beings visiting us from a feline planet that are cat-like, although that is a trope that appears within the uh, the lore of this topic. What we're talking about here in terms of ABCs are big cats that are in areas where they shouldn't be. So in effect, they are alien. Um, predominantly in the UK, it's a very well-known trend that there are these sightings of big black cats and panthers and the like roaming the countryside, and they are known as alien big cats. And seeing as we're doing ABCs, we thought we might as well extend it just a little bit further because we always like to take on a little bit more than uh, than everybody else's. We'd add on Ds. So we thought we'd add on to that dogs so sightings of demon dogs big black dogs or potentially even you know one of the trendiest things in the world at the moment skinwalkers perhaps Ooh. so yeah ash <laughs> over to you <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that's that's really good intro thanks there yeah i've been really looking forward to this um it's a really interesting subtopic i think of the, of the wider supernatural phenomenon and also uh, encounters that people have uh, so yeah you mentioned there you know, we're not talking about aliens as little green men or feline versions of, but more so it's alien to the environment. So this is an animal that shouldn't be in the environments where it's being seen. Um, and as you say, this is happening all across the UK. There are some global um, sightings as well, but there's there's a lot of UK ones. Uh, I mean, probably the most famous one in the UK is like the Beast of Bodmin, um, which, you know, that's that's been around for quite a while. But there seems to have been a kind of a bit of a rise this this seemed to really start occurring back in the 60s i think um when people first started seeing them which is quite interesting because a lot of the time people uh refer back to the dangerous wild uh wild animals act of 1976 as being the kind of start of why these animals were being seen out in the wild because there's that i guess there's that twofold explanation of well is it a real flesh and blood animal and it's out there and the reason it's out there is because people release these wild animals after this act came in or is it something a little bit more supernatural? So maybe we can we can explore that. Um, I'm happy to go into a little bit more around the Dangerous Wildlife Act and what kind of that meant, if if that helps sort of frame where we're coming from. If you think that's that's good, if that's a good starting point for us, I think that would be a really good place to start, particularly given sort of your background as well. Um, again, I, it's written down in big bold type in my notes is the Dangerous Wild Animals Act of 1976, mm. which made it 
illegal to keep these large animals without a license, including the likes of giraffes, venomous snakes. Um, we don't hear many sightings of giraffes running, uh, yeah, running around the wilds of... of East Anglia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so basically what you, you, you hit the nail on the head. What this act um, was, was aimed to do was basically, yeah, put in effect, put a ban on people owning exotic pets, large pets, um, and it covered... You know, animals such as large cats, felines, um, cheetahs, leopards, those those kind of animals. Um, the problem was you had to apply for a license, and I, I imagine the license fee was probably very expensive. There was a lot of, um, you know, processes and different things you had to adhere to, uh, you know, fencing them in. It would have had to have been routinely inspected, et cetera. You know, it's quite a high level of, of um, work involved to maintain that license, I imagine. So a lot of these owners, um, rather than face prosecution or huge costs in licensing fees um there is rumors that a lot of these animals were released into the wild um that was back in the 90s, 1976 obviously that came in uh yeah so are we now looking at the remnants of that these escaped animals and they've turned into a breeding population and they've spread across the uk um that's one one theory uh, and we'll go into some other theories but yeah in essence this act came in um it stopped people owning these large animals um and many of them are believed to have been released into the wild really interesting that that again it's back to 1976 and you mentioned their potentially breeding populations because mm. the average lifespan of a leopard or a jaguar is sort of between 12 and 18 years so even if we take the assumption that back in 1976 somebody who had a illegally held pet panther of some description released it into the wild rather than have to go through all these loopholes and this paperwork and this red tape in order to justify owning it if these if these cats are still being seen that suggests that there certainly is a mm. breeding population out there and again i don't know how many of these people kept a male and a female or whether they were kept as solitary animals but certainly the suggestion and the implication would have to be that yes these are breeding pairs because we are now many years almost 50 years later still having these sightings of of black cats yeah and and the sightings go back before that um as i said there seemed to be like a bit of a flap uh, back in the 60s of, of different sightings um i've got one here actually which is quite an interesting one uh during the research for this if only i'd have known about it i literally lived a couple of miles away from this um when i used to live in london but there was one called the shooters shooter hill cheetah of southeast london um and this sparked a notorious cheetah hunt back in 1963 um basically <laughs> was it have to be light yeah. on your feet to catch a cheetah i would imagine yeah yeah um, so basically shooters hill for those that don't know um it's actually surrounded by some really ancient woodland which is quite rare for for london it's part yeah. of the green chain walk and it's yeah it's quite a wooded dense area i used to go jogging around there and sort of grew up in that area so i know it quite well but i didn't actually know about this interestingly until i, until I did some research um but yeah back in 63 um the this so, so-called cheetah was seen first by a lorry driver. And then interestingly, secondly, a sighting was by a police officer um, who claimed that this thing jumped onto the bonnet of his patrol vehicle. And obviously the fact that a police officer uh, reported this added the credibility and, and then like a huge hunt for this, this creature was, was arranged. And apparently it involved the local police and the army. They did a massive search of the area, um, but they failed to sort of produce any trail of where this animal had gone or, or where it had been. So that's quite an interesting one. It um, is. I have to ask the question, do we know what make of car was he, he was driving? Was he driving a Jaguar? Oh, that would have been interesting, <laughs> wouldn't it? Although saying that back in the, you know, back in the 60s, the, the police, they, they were driving good cars like the Jags and stuff. So. They were. Unfortunately, when I was when I when I was on patrol, we were, we were stuck with um, Skodas. And, uh, <laughs> although, to be honest, some of them were quite good. Yeah, VRS, um, VRS at some good. point. Yeah. Be all right. But again, I, I, 
the fact that they brought the army in and the police to check this just again shows when we talk often in the in the UFO world about the credibility of witnesses and the lorry driver seeing it yeah okay mm. but then a police officer sees it and immediately there's that sudden right this has to be real a police well, the officer fact he the fact it. he actually um, reported to his superiors and didn't, didn't just sort of um, forget about it and go oh, I'm not going to tell anyone about that because I'll be deemed you know complete yeah. nut job he actually reported it you know, it went up the chain of command, obviously, to get the army in um, is quite a big thing as well, because obviously you've got that boundary between civilian and, and military, and to actually call for military aid, um, it, there's a process that has to take place before police sort of um, give any uh, any kind of um, yeah, power, so powers of, or um, yeah, it's a high level. To, to involve yeah, military. it's not it's not an instant thing to have soldiers roaming, you know, and, and helping. Providing assistance to the civil aid is, is quite a serious thing. Uh, it's not a, not a decision that's made made lightly. So um, yeah, I'll have to have a little bit on digging into that. It's quite it's intrigued me now, considering I did used to live in that area and I know it quite well. Um, but yeah, I just thought you were saying about sightings and we were saying about the wildlife, but there's actually sightings before that. And actually, when you look back through history, and I'm sure we'll touch upon the mythical folklore side of things in, in a little bit. But there's there's you know this stuff goes back for hundreds of years, and it's got all kinds of links to supernatural witchcraft, uh, yeah, local folk folklore tales. So um, yeah, I just thought it was an interesting one to start with. Definitely. And again, it draws a parallel to our, again, our favourite topic of the UFO and UAP, where many people believe that there was nothing before Roswell in 1947 or, or Kenneth Arnold in 1947. Yeah. But again, if we look back at the work of the likes of our good friend Graham Rendell and the work he's done on the Foo Fighters during the Second World War and just, in, just immediately preceding the Second World War, and then potentially going back even further to, as we talked about in episode three about UFO and UAP, the, the long history of the ghost rockets and the the, the um, airship sightings. So yeah, again, there's a parallel here to be drawn that 1976 is sort of like a, a watermark, perhaps a, a tideline in here with the Dangerous Wild Animals Act. But these sightings precede this certainly into the decade immediately before that. And if we do go back and look at some of the historical sightings way, way before that as well. So wonderful. Um, I do have one question for you on this topic, Ash. Um, it's something I've never seen or experienced. I've never had a big cat sighting or a wild dog or a that type of thing. Have you ever experienced anything like this? Yes, I think I briefly touched upon this in episode three. Um, I don't really have much else to add to it, but for those that haven't listened, like, yeah, yeah, basically I have. Um, so I now live in a, in a rural area in, in sort of the East Midlands. And um, yeah, one evening a few years back, I was driving along country lane, literally half a mile from my house. Um, very rural, surrounded by fields for miles and miles, lots of deep ditches and, and sort of drainage areas. And um, yeah, I just saw this this black, what well, I can only describe as a, a black panther. Um, I mean, panther is a, a sort of generic term for the kind of melanin melanistic um color variations of, of leopards and uh jaguars isn't it yeah. um but yeah it, it was stereotypical panther looking large feline had uh, reflective yellow eyes in my headlights were reflecting it and it was just sort of prowling um on the off sides um to where i was driving just along the ditch and it just kind of looked just you know wasn't fussed by the fact the car was there just just plodding along and uh yeah had a really odd prowling kind of yeah, it had a cat movement. I don't know yeah. really how to describe it, but it, it was definitely not a dog. Um, it took me a few moments to actually realise what the hell I'd seen because it's so out of place. You don't expect to see that in the British countryside. Um, and it was only like a fleeting look that I had. It was probably like five seconds that I was looking at this thing, but it was enough to actually comprehend that that's not 
something I normally recognize as, as seeing in the countryside. And, you know, I'm out hiking all the time, walking with my dog and uh, love the outdoors. So I'm, I'm used to seeing different animals and, and what's around. Yeah. And yeah, that, that certainly wasn't something and, I was and again, used you're, to. And you're a trained observer. I mean, you are, <laughs> you have been trained to take notes of things that you see around and, and have those utilized in law. Yeah. I mean, no one's infallible, but I'd like to think. I've got a pretty good understanding of, of when I witness things, how to interpret that and, and write this down, et cetera, and, and evidence that. So yeah, that was, that was very strange. Um, and it just kind of, yeah, it just, just mind its own business, just walk alongside the road and it just popped into a hedge and I lost sight of it. So, um, but what's really interesting is after that, I then subsequently went, surely I'm not imagining things. Um, because it, interestingly, it's on the same stretch of road. There's probably, I don't know, no more than 400 meters stretch of road where I've had some other weird things happening. So then we start going down the supernatural route and, and the kind of link to consciousness, et cetera, which we'll touch upon probably yeah, numerous points through this podcast. Uh, but then I started thinking, well, has anyone else experienced this locally? And that's only then I started doing research. And actually, yeah. there's, there's been lots and lots of sightings in this area um, around the same sort of time, I think a few months earlier, uh, and this was over COVID, someone actually had their dog attacked by a black cat. And there's actually, you know, you go on the website and there's photographs of, um, this is in a local woodland um, owned by the Forestry Commission. And yeah, someone had their dog attacked. And there's photos of this poor little injured dog. Fortunately, it was it was fine. It's, it survived. But the um, owner saw, yeah, saw a large cat creature come out and, and attack their dog. So you've got that. So it's all starting to build up. You've got the circumstances, yeah. you've got eyewitness accounts, you've got some physical attack. But then there's, there's also been um, sheep killings as well, locally yeah. over the last sort of few years. Um, and it all goes down to, oh, it was a dog. Sorry, but how is a dog attacking multiple sheep across multiple different farm areas and different fields in the manner they are, um, and, and no one's seen it, and no one's you know reported a dog missing, etc. Most most people are out walking their dog. Yeah, the odd sheep attack, you might have a nefarious owner that doesn't want to report the fact that their dog's attacked someone. But for this to keep happening over a prolonged period of time in different areas, does seem to suggest that there's prop- there's a predator out there. Um, so yeah, that was my 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 brief encounter with uh, a black cat. It's really interesting. And again, you know, you mentioned that you had this sighting and it's only when you start looking into having anybody else seen anything similar that you are accessing that information. And there isn't a centralized reporting hotline. There's no centralized data collection point. It all sort of feels um, almost as if it's just ad, you know, ad hoc and on the fly. And you begin to wonder that perhaps if this data is recorded, stored centrally, that there is a, a way that more of this data can be pulled together in one, one sing, single place. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I did. Um, so, yeah, the only real place that people really report these is to the local police. And when I was looking locally as well after my sighting, uh, my local force at the time, I think, had six. There was a, basically someone else was researching this. I don't know who they were. It was obviously all, all um, yeah. Uh, you know, blocked out for, for privacy reasons so I couldn't see who was uh, who, who had put the request in but it was a freedom of information request and yeah basically the force was saying they'd had six report, reports uh, of this black cat in the local vicinity in the past year and that was back in 2020 so how many more have they had now um, so yeah you've got police forces but like you say this, this data is all over the place there's no sort of central aggregation of, of the data and it being pulled together and analysed you have got the British Big Cat Society uh, and I did actually put my report through to them I never heard anything back I don't even know if it's still operating it's really hard to tell from the website I mean it's still got copyright 2014 on it so I, I don't yeah. know how active they are um, but I know they were just doing some really good work um previously and sort of collating all that information and, and working out the patterns mapping it and seeing where these 
uh, sightings were taking place. So, yeah, we, you're right. You're absolutely right. We don't have a centralized database. Um, so anyone trying to research this has really got to go out to uh, multiple different organizations and, and try and get this data together and then find a way of interpreting it and, br- and bringing it all together and analyzing it. And do like we've done, dig through local newspaper accounts, find Facebook mm-hmm. groups. Because again, one of the things that uh, we've looked at is the number of big cat Facebook groups there are on on oh, there's, Facebook, there's there tons. are, there are yeah. tons and some of them are active and some of them are inactive. And so there is a wealth of data out there to be collected, but it's just the effort involved in collecting it. And again, I would imagine if I was a local police force, and again, I stress that the, the local there, you don't want to cause alarm unless there's any certainty, you know, my mind goes back to the film Jaws and, you know, there's, you don't want to cause panic. You don't want to cause worry without absolute rock solid substantial evidence. hundred percent. And also you've got to look at the, the legal implications of that as well. And also, um, you know, potential litigation as well. You know, if, um, local authorities know about, um, you know, big cats being out there on the prowl, how does that look to constituents and, and people living in that area that it's just, nothing's been done about it. Um, you know, particularly farmers and agricultural industry. You know, they're, if they're losing livestock, that's that's their bread and butter. That's their that's that's how they make their money. You know, it's very hard to make profit as a farmer anyway. You rely heavily on subsidies. So to have a number of your livestock potentially mutilated and killed by a, an unknown creature is, um, yeah, for that to become public is is going to cause all manner of problems. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's the flip side of that where. One of the things that we've looked at as we've done our research into this is there's a really interesting video taken maybe about half an hour away from where I live in Halifax Mm -hmm. at a beautiful building called Peace Hall, which has recently been renovated and is well worth a visit, really great tourist spot. But it's of a large black cat that was caught on CCTV, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes, prowling through the, the, the hallways, if you like, these outdoor hallways of Peace Hall. Now, you and I both looked at it, and you have a far better eye for analysing this type of data, and it's only CCTV footage, and your comment to me was, mm, not sure, doesn't look perfect to me, doesn't convince me. There's something about the display, uh, the recording display, that feels not natural to me, and your point to me was this could be a marketing exercise. And so, again, you know, these these could be ways to, to attract people in some, some instances. Um, the one thing that I did find really interesting with that video is that it was taken in November 2020. And one of the things that I don't know if everybody can cast their minds back now to just coming out of lock, 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 lockdown times in COVID, but one of the things that was doing the rounds globally then were wildlife taking back the city centres. We had these huge periods of time all around the world where nobody was visiting the cities, the towns were deserted, and there were footage of wild animals walking through city centres. It felt you know, a little bit like an apocalyptic uh, vision of the future, but living in the present. So again, part of me just goes, well, if Halifax is a rural city, a rural town, sorry, there's a lot of very wild moorland all around there. Perhaps this big cat was taking advantage of the fact that nobody was in the town centre for six or seven months and was coming for an explore. Yeah, I'm, I'm still very sceptical about this one. I, just looking at the imagery, I mean, I've spent a lot of time um, analysing CCTV, um, got quite a bit of expertise in relation to yeah, systems integration, sensor systems and stuff like that in relation to, to CCTV and imagery and video analytics, etc. This just looks quite... Um, fake to me with the with the old uh, lines going across it you know the, the refresh yeah. rate lines ctv doesn't have that anymore and um <laughs> it doesn't look very good quality ctv if if that's what they're using so yeah i don't know it just doesn't feel right it does seem to be 
probably a marketing exercise, like you say, putting it into context of the time period and the fact yeah. it was COVID and perhaps their visitor numbers were down, et cetera. So um, not that we can prove that. I nope. think I've just got to put it in. That's that's my best case guess at the moment. And um, that's one of the reasons we have you here, Ash. You have a far more <laughs> critical and analytical mind and far more experience of these type of things than I do. So, But, uh, but there are some yeah. really good clips out there. On, on the flip side, there are some really good clips, like you say, but they're, they're, they're very much just on Facebook groups. Um, it never necessarily hits the media or hits you know uh, wider attention um so if anyone is interested yeah have a look out there there's some there's some good facebook groups out there all i would say is yeah have that critical eye and and, and just try and contextualize it uh, it's very hard when you're looking at imagery particularly mobile phone footage or c3 imagery yeah. to actually gauge um the size of um different objects at different distances you've got no way of really triangulating uh, landmarks and particularly if you're in a rural area and there's nothing to triangulate the distances it involves yeah. a lot of mathematics to actually work out the the actual size of these objects so um yeah have a look it's just interesting to look at that but you know the fact of the matter is there's, there's something here people are reporting it people are seeing it you know i've seen something like you know that, that shouldn't be there um not that you should take my word for it but it's one part <laughs> of the puzzle isn't it you've got me seeing something you've got local reports you've got other people seeing things you've got these media reports you know you've got official agencies going out there looking for these these yeah. uh, cats as well i mean there's another one um i was quickly mentioning but the, the beast of exmoor is, is another you know well-known one in the uk and back in 1988 again there was a lot of sheep being killed in that area uh and as it was known then the ministry of agriculture is now defra department yep. um for rural uh, rural affairs is that what it is That's department it, yeah. for Farming environment rural food affairs. and rural yeah they've got yep, the food, food but now department affairs, for environment yep. food and rural affairs um but ministry of agriculture back then yeah they were actually sent to the scene and um there was a huge search and they actually again called in the military this time it was the royal marines and kind of like you know, sharpshooters snipers um were out there trying to track these these cats and they spent several several days i think looking for them um but in the in the end they couldn't find anything i think they were more worried they'd probably end up shooting uh because you know it, it was a bit hysteria there's a lot of people interested in it i think they were more worried they'd probably end up shooting a bystander or someone that was trying to track it themselves with, with a camera than, than the actual cat so it was yeah. probably for safety Dangerous. reasons they they stood down but um and then they they claimed that it was a ravenous fox. I mean, that's just that's just ridiculous. <laughs> one one measly fox is attacking with a sheep. But yeah. but again, you know, um, yeah, official agencies have been involved. Incredible. And there's a wonderful article again, which we will link to from Peterborough today, from the 11th of May, 2023, which states that DNA from a black hair caught on a barbed wire fence following sheep attacks in the UK has offered definitive proof big cats are prowling the British countryside. So they've taken this hair that was found near, again, sheep attack. And there's also been footage recorded of this by several people. And a forensic laboratory has done a species identification analysis on it using mitochondrial DNA analysis to ascertain a 99% match to a big cat species. So that would seem to suggest to me that there is certainly uh, some good hard evidence that these black cats these big big cats are roaming our countryside and mm. we certainly have a wild enough countryside that this could be the case yeah absolutely so let's touch upon that a lot of time people say oh well there's there's not enough food source out there for these things to be roaming well there is i mean like you know there's loads of wild animals out there and they yeah. manage to maintain you know, healthy population and, and, and food source. I mean, yeah, if they're attacking sheep, that's that's quite a readily available 
you know, we've, we, I don't know what the ratio is no. of sheep. Um, I know it's, it's different in certain parts of the UK and uh, obviously New Zealand, there's, there's a huge rate of human to, <laughs> to sheep ratio. And I think Wales is the same as well. But um, yeah, there, there's a lots of livestock out there. So if these things are feeding off livestock, yeah. readily available. And in addition know. to that, you have small small mammals, you know, rabbits yeah, and hares. I'm, exactly. I, I can go out and walk outside my dorm within five minutes, see a number of rabbits and hares quite easily without even yeah. looking for them so there's a years in the introduction of monk jack deer yeah. into the countryside well, as well you know, again the, that's something else species. that's local to me monk jack are all over the place so yeah there's there's plenty of um food source out there for them and what's interesting as well is if you look at the topography of the land and the geography as well you've only got to look at an ordnance survey map and you can see a number of different drainage ditches particularly in agricultural areas which are needed to prevent flooding and and allow um water water to to feed into the uh, farmland areas um, you know these things want to remain hidden. If they yeah. if they are from an escaped exotic uh, animal, you know um, domesticated exotic animal population back in the seventies, they've learned to adapt, and that's what cats do. They've learned to adapt. They've learned to um, use the environment to their advantage, and they they know that if they engage with human humans, that's probably not going to end well for them. So they probably are quite uh, reclusive animals that are using the environment to their advantage because that's what animals do. That's what, you know, apex predators do. Very nature of their survival, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. So the, the fact that I saw it near a ditch and it was probably prowling around in the bushes and it, it's probably got its own network. I mean, I noticed when I'm out dog walking, you can see the tracks of animals. You can yeah. see the difference between, um, you know, a rabbit. Um, it's almost like a, a nature's highway. You get the yeah. deer tracks as well and they use the exact say, same being, tracks. Being, being a mountain biker, uh, you know, I, I will often look out for deer tracks and mm. go and find some exciting trails that are unexplored uh, yeah. and... and well, they, they've laid the trail for you. Absolutely. I don't need to go out and cut the trail back. They've already made that way through. The yeah, so, so why would these cats not be any different is, is I guess, what I'm getting at. Yeah. And again, we, we look at, you know, these so-called extinct species that people still find. There are mm-hmm. numerous examples. Again, anybody who's got um, Discovery Plus, go and just watch Forest Galante going exploring around the world and finding these these animals that mm-hmm. apparently are either already extinct or on the close to extinction list and finding examples of them. So, yeah, I, I think there's a very high likelihood that we do have these real physical big cats here in the UK. Which brings me on to big dogs and black dogs. So, again, you mentioned when you talked there about your sighting that you were this thing moved in a feline way. It wasn't a, it wasn't a dog. Um, but, again, there is a, a huge long tradition of people seeing black dogs in the UK. Um, again, right on my doorstep in the Yorkshire Dales, there's a, a well-known The Legend of Troller's Gill, which comes from a book um, in 1830 by William Hone, and it tells the story of a man who ventured, in, ventured out into the, the limestone countryside in the Yorkshire Dales, out near Grassington, near Appletreewick, and they see what they call a bad guest. And I apologise, my Middle mm. English is not the greatest, but again, if we look at the, the etymology of that word bad guest, it comes from, from beer, beer or berg, so a, a town, and then the guest bit is a, a ghost. So it's literally the town ghost. And in this particular example, it was a big black dog with glowing red eyes, which would, how, which would prowl the, the, no, the local countryside, preying on wild animals, preying on um, livestock. And the gentleman went out there to confront it. And the next day, his lifeless body was discovered with inhuman marks upon his breast. So he'd been attacked Ooh. by something and left left for dead. Mm. 
So uh, I haven't been out there for a while, but I will certainly head out to Trollers Gill in the next few weeks. And uh, I love that name, by the way. What a great name. That's what I love about the British British uh, towns and villages. Their names are just awesome. There's so much history behind them. Well, the origin, again, of the, of the name Trollers Gill is because it is a site where trolls were. Mm. So even predating this bad guest from the, the 1800s, this big black dog, there's a history of trolls, of yeah. bizarre, unusual creatures that, that were in this area, in this land. It has a supernatural history. Yeah, and there's many places like that when yeah when you get into the etymology of the names and, and everything and and where they originate from, there's that that's it's almost like etched into the the, the land across the whole of the British Isles. There's so much history and and uh, yeah folklore there. Um, another one I think is quite popular. You talk about dogs is, is the black shark, the uh, you yes. know the so-called demon dog of East Anglia. Um, and again, you're talking about the origin of words. Um, so shark is actually it actually comes from the Anglo-Saxon Anglo-Saxon word suka. Uh, Skooka, sorry, which is for demon. Uh, it means demon. So it actually, yeah, Skooka. I think I pronounced it right. Yeah, brilliant. I'll tell you what, we should do at this point, Ash. We should drop in a little clip because one of our favourite um, BBC radio dramas is the Lovecraft trilogy, uh, oh, yeah. featuring the wonderful really Whisperer good. in Darkness. And I have already prepared a tiny little clip from that with one of the characters, a gentleman by the name of Albert Wilmarth where he talks a little bit about Black Shuck. It's not based on any kind of belief. You know, the tales of Old Shuck, for example. Old Shuck being? Well, it's a dog. It's sometimes called Black Shuck. It's a big black dog that has been sighted in this area for centuries. There's a church over in Blytheborough, Holy Trinity Church, and the door there still bears scorch marks that were supposedly made in 1577 when the devil took the form of Old Shuck burst through those doors and killed two parishioners. Now, do I believe that literally happened? No, I don't. Despite believing in the devil, I don't think that happened. Do I think there's a chance that a rabid dog killed two people during a church service and that the legend grew from there? Well, that's a possibility, isn't it? And how that legend grows and weaves itself into the local narrative is interesting to me. So you're saying something did happen here over Christmas in 1980? That's a great series, and anyone that hasn't listened to that, if you're into this kind of stuff, definitely is it's gripping. It really is. It is. It's, it's a wonderful thing. My again, my uh, my young children have listened to every single episode of it, and it it was that that led us to our family visit to uh, the UFO trail at Rendlesham last year or two years ago now. But yeah, so yeah, Black Shuck is a wonderful one, and again, there's 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 uh, the, the church in Blytheborough in East Anglia, not far mm-hmm. from the Rendlesham Forest incident. There are allegedly scorch marks in the door of Blytheborough Church from where Black Shuck appeared and scared, I think scared two people to death, something like that. Yeah, um, I'm just reading it here. Yeah, apparently he, uh, yeah. According to an old pamphlet, he departed leaving two dead worshippers strangled at their prayers and another shrunken as a piece of leather scorched into uh, scorched in a hot fire. So there we go. Good heavens, Black Shuck. Yeah. Yeah, and it's also the Darkness song as well. Just from oh. that, because they're, they're from East Anglia, aren't they? The Darkness, the band. <laughs> so they got a song Black Shuck. Yeah. I did not know that. That's yeah. I've learned something new today as well. Brilliant. I'm gonna have to go and listen to that. Another thing that really caught my eye again, talking particularly about about Black Shuck, is also within Rendlesham Forest. There's another sort of slightly strange paranormal creature that they talked about recently on an episode of uh, Cosmic Cantina podcast, um, which was the Shug Monkey. <laughs> just the name of that made me laugh 
Um, and the Shug Monkey is is distinct to Black Shuck, but in a way related. And it is a, a black dog with a monkey's face that has been oh. seen in in the in the woods around uh, Rendlesham as as well. So again, the history of these creatures is is long standing. It's freaky that is. Imagine seeing that. You know, again though, how, how would you even process that when you see it? Um, you've got no frame of reference, have you? No. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. I found that really interesting when you were describing what you're citing as well. You said it took me a while to process it because I knew I shouldn't be seeing it or it's it's out of the ordinary. So it's like I knew, like, yeah. It's it's like I knew what it was. Obviously, I've got a frame of reference. I've seen images images of big cats. I've been to zoos, etc. I've seen stuff online, read books. So it's almost like you've got that in your knowledge bank. Mm. But then contextualizing it into the location you're in, it it shouldn't be there. So there's kind of like this battle in your head. You're like, that doesn't make sense. And um, yeah, it takes you a few seconds to process. That's why I was then like, surely I wasn't imagining this. Like, I'm pretty certain I saw that. Like, I, you know, it wasn't. It was early evening. It wasn't like I was I was that tired. Or you can you can you know, look at other yeah, psychological exactly. reasons as to why I would have seen that. So um, I was kind of a little bit more comforted that no other people had seen stuff and there's probably a logical explanation for this. Wow. One of the wonderful things I do like about these these black dog legends as well is some of the associated elements that they seem to possess. So they're not just black dogs. Many of them are able to shapeshift and to transmute into other shape mm. forms. And again, I think that the name that it's it's the town ghost or the the the... the the regional ghost, the local ghost is interesting. Some really interesting facts that, that are associated with them. They often take the form of a large black dog with fiery eyes. I will come back to that shortly because that's important to me personally. They also have the ability to become invisible. They are often associated with um, foretelling death. So again, one of the things we've talked about, and I know, I know we'll come back to in future, is is the owl. I know you have some sightings, and again, the work of Mike Cleland is, is yeah. We'll, we'll do an episode on that. There, so again, that's another sign and a symbol, and again, that links into something I know we'll talk about here in terms of of some of the Jungian archetypes and the historic mythical importance of those. Um, but this was one that really caught my eye about the uh, the bad guest, is it is also associated often with the sound of rattling chains oh and where so have we heard that before absolutely so that is very common in sasquatch and bigfoot sightings there's a metallic sound like a grating or a grinding mm. um, or the sound of chains even sometimes um and again it, it appears in sightings of the yowie which is the australian version of the bigfoot there's this this metallic sound again and again, for those of you with uh, knowledge of the UFO world, as like Ash and I have, it's often often associated with UFO sightings, this large metallic grating and ground it grinding sound that almost sounds as if it's coming from all around you. But again, this is one of these elements that when we talk about the broader scope of everything we're trying to cover here, there are these little pockets of information that cross over across all of them. And this is a really key one for me, this sounds like sounds like feels like this is an important area that that covers mm. so many of these topics and, and this is why i guess we wanted to include this on the on the podcast some people might think well why have you included this in in the mechanism um i guess we're at a segue now in the episode so there, i think we've established there probably is potentially a, a breeding flesh and blood real life animal population out there of, of big cats um may or may not be linked to the dangerous wild uh, animal act in 1976 where exotic animals are released but there's also this stranger element this more supernatural element that i think we're going down now which is yeah i'm really interested to explore this a bit further yeah definitely this element of the the woo that we talk about and one of the yeah. other really key areas again of the, the bad guest is that it's unable to cross rivers 
There's mm. elements of it being um, you could repel it with iron, you could repel it with silver. So again, we're almost getting into vampire law here as well, and these abilities of certain metals to keep things away. And going back again to the fae and the fairy folk, giving them gifts or using the you know using iron as a means of keeping them away. And again, we even come back to some of the UFO world when we think about UFO alien abduction and implants. Mm. Suggestion that some of these are of of rare earth metals or even occasionally non-earth metals so there's some really interesting ties and parallels there that perhaps this black dog isn't a black dog there's there's more there and again perhaps that was the paradigmatic framework that allowed people to explain it and describe it um and i mentioned the fiery eyes and i think i've mentioned this before but i'll come back to it again my ufo sighting uh, my most memorable one was on carlton moor and I've done research into the, the local law there, and I know Philip Mantle, if, if anybody's aware of the, any of the books by or the work by Philip Mantle, he talks about investigating and interviewing the locals around there when he was looking into uh, Tony Dodd sightings. Mm-hmm. And they talk about a big black dog on the moors. And if you go and you look at the original texts and the original uh, law, they didn't describe a big black dog. They called it a big, big black dog, but what they saw moving across the hillside were two fiery eyes. And if I go back to my UFO sighting on Carlton Moor, what I saw were two, mm-hmm. what we called at the time, O-balls, orange balls of light, what people now call orbs. Orbs, yeah. And so perhaps we're all seeing the same thing and trying to describe it in a different way. So there's that cult- cultural aspect, isn't there, um, and framing it into into a way that you know is is relevant to your time period and and your frame of reference from what you're used to in in that particular time that you're you're seeing it in you know and this goes back to the whole airships and that kind of stuff and people uh, describing things in in the way the only way they know because that's all they've got in their frame of reference people are now you know the whole sci-fi side of things now people are seeing more technologically advanced ufos uaps um but yeah back then during those reports all they had was this uh this folklore and myth yep. to to uh, to fall back on and that that's probably all they could really comprehend it and describe it as yeah one of the other key things that again we touched upon earlier was you you mentioned the names of these places and, and for me trollers gill and trollers gill for those of you who don't know is the lead the bad guest of trollers gill is also one of the, uh, reputedly one of the ways that um arthur conan doyle came up with the hound of the baskervilles so uh, that was yes yeah, part yeah. Of the makes inspiration sense for that but again, Trollers Gill called called after the trolls because there were these these you know strange creatures that lurked there that scared people. But uh, from a geological point of view, it's a limestone area with underwater caverns and ravines, so you get this travel of water underground. And again, me in my twenty twenty three world, my first thought goes, okay, so you have this large structure in this case the, the the limestone pavement and below there you have these underwater rivers running mm-hmm. and my my thoughts go okay so how different is that to somewhere like skinwalker ranch where you have the large mesa and then these large bodies of water underneath it that they're starting to find and starting to discover that are moving about how is that influencing or affecting what people are seeing 
Well, there's also that that long-standing link between water movement, potential ley lines, energy lines, that kind of stuff as well. So, yeah, there does again. You talk about parallels. There does seem to be a parallel between yeah areas of bodies of water or fast-flowing water, rivers, etc., and also yeah supernatural encounters, uh, myth and folklore surrounding those areas. So, I think yeah. location is key when we're talking about this sort of stuff. And the geographical makeup as well, Lee. The Definitely. actual geological yeah. makeup. Sorry, the 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 the, the, the perhaps the the, the formations of the stones the land itself the land itself perhaps is yeah. forming part of this and one other thing that's really key when we look at these areas again particularly for me locally is many of these have neolithic settlements or they have neolithic burial mm-hmm. grounds or they have neolithic stone circles so for example uh, the carlton moor and ilkley moor both very close to me both again with these legends of the black dog have neolithic barrows and they have stone circles so for how many years you know with the stone circle on ilkley moor is three and a half thousand years old have people been attracted to these areas because of these sightings is there something about this area that draws people in potentially or is, it, or is it a significance that again they're seeing these things in the area that are causing them to to, to mark them again we have to cut the um, cup, and, cup and ring markings on the stones here again three and a half thousand years old are they a, a representation of what people are seeing around them and trying to capture as well mm. i think they certainly seem to be more um in tune with what was going on in in, in the in the location the vicinity that than perhaps we are in the modern world uh, we do we do seem to have lost and i think i touched upon that in a previous episode we do seem to have lost that and we've got that sort of ancestral um amnesia we yeah. seem to have lost that knowledge and understanding of the significance of these these sites and locations definitely and again i think you know we we touched upon this earlier the the idea that some of these archetypal images are are, are what we are seeing and expressing when we see these things ash yeah i was just going to touch upon really you know the Jungian archetypes i think there's two uh archetypes that, that might be relevant when we're talking about you know, black cat sightings or or the the, um, the dogs is the kind of um, the the shadow archetype embodying the shadow, and this is the concept that it kind of represents suppressed or hidden aspects of the human psyche and um, links to you know our primal instincts and fears as humans. Um, is is this kind of encountering a creature embodies that those suppressed elements uh, of and that unease and that kind of feeling of um fear i, I don't yeah. know that's much, one aspect yeah and how much of that is is our external embodiment of that internal uh, exactly um, yeah. sensation or feeling and this Indeed. is this is a representation of that visually of of that that inner mass yeah we're manifesting it of that, that inner feeling and the other one i think was um the wild nature archetypes sort or of manifesting wild nature and this is representing untamed instinctual aspects of human existence um so is this about trying to connect back with nature and having that primal connection with nature is, is that is the kind of fascination with alien big cats and seeing these in like rural locations uh, a collective yearning to reconnect with with wilderness that we've kind of lost i guess in in modern life so very much yeah. so in modern life yeah there's a there's a real the call of the wild isn't it almost a drawn yeah. back yeah so there's there's that element that i think's worth worth chucking in the mix as well is there is there a more that- archetypal consciousness Link to uh, this. explanation to this yeah yeah there's one thing that that occurred to me then as well is perhaps we talked a little bit about location and how that can feed to that can that be a, a stimulus to certain elements of of our psyche of our subconscious thoughts and fears um mm. that allow these to surface so thinking again they're talking about the underground rivers and the underground ravines maybe that movement of water you don't hear it with your normal 
perceptual hearing, but it maybe affects us at a lower level. So perhaps there's a almost like an infrasound, and I know there's been yeah, I was just going to say infrasound. Yeah. Infrasound can be used to create a sensation of fear. We go back to um, John Alexander and, and non-lethal weaponry, and how they can use things like infrasound to create terror and fear and scare away groups of of, of people, and even you know the, the modern day outside the the uh, shopping centres where they'll play these really frequencies that only teenagers can hear and it makes them go away, you know. Oh, they're, they're great, they are, yeah. If you've got antisocial behaviour in your hair, I think they call them mosquitoes. Um, that's it. Yeah, they do work. Um, that's interesting you mentioned around that because um, that was a point I was going to try and touch upon is the location. Um, and this is being really speculative, but one of the theories I've had is what if, yeah, what if there is um, there is a more human explanation to some of these sightings, and it's more around protecting a secretive site or a military complex, etc., by using psychotronic weaponry such as yeah an infrasound type device, um, and then you can actually invoke these. Uh, it's almost a hallucination. You know, yeah. By invoke, you know, by by putting out these signals, this infrasound, perhaps you can actually deter people from coming close to areas of sensitive areas. Um, you know, because a lot of these sightings do occur in uh, in sensitive places, rural locations, and and perhaps you know something secret is going on. Government, military, whoever yeah. it might be, doesn't want anyone stumbling upon that. That's yeah, this is purely speculative. There's there's no that's evidence a really to this. Good, good point, and maybe there is a na- maybe there is a natural element to this. And again, that that's what's been known for many years that there is this way to perhaps and it and it's just been harnessed conscious yeah. and it's been yeah it's been utilised as as a. And again, we go back to OSAP and what was that? It was about utilizing mm-hmm. these things for for, mili- for military offer, for weaponizing these Well, there's, there's theories that Ren- the Renishim incident had an element of that yeah. as well, psychotronic um, you know, experimentation and weaponry. So you, you just don't know. One thing I will say in the UK and, and well, and, and globally, and I think Tom DeLong touched upon this in his Secret Machines book, is you know if you did want to prevent people from accessing a secure military site or somewhere where you were doing you know perhaps research on crashed ret- you know, retrieved items or something yeah. that was really deep black, budget uh, black program for example you would do it somewhere out of the way where there's there's not many people around um and an easy way of preventing people from going to those areas is, is to restrict it as a as an area of um well in the uk we call on triple si sites site of special scientific interest i think that's what it's called oh, yeah. um so i'm not saying that is what's happening but that is an easy way to prevent people from accessing an area you know you say there's a rare butterfly or there's a rare um science of special scientific interest yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's there's an endangered species that instantly puts um you know restrictions on a who, who can, can go there it. b what can be built there um c you know uh, who can go to that land and pass through their you know bridleways footpaths they can all be restricted so there's a lot of um, power behind putting a triple si site in in place um so I, if I was a better man, I would say there are probably sites in the UK and probably globally that have a similar yeah. kind of um, special status designation. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's where things yeah, probably are going to be hidden, and perhaps some of these sightings are some form of advanced psychotronic, um, almost a, like a perimeter guard, yeah. um, to prevent people from going there. Because you know, if you've had an encounter with one of these things, it's it's yeah, scary. You don't want to go back. You don't it want to go a, back. And we talked before, it is a primeval fear and it exactly. taps into that that absolutely instinctive need to to, to run, to flee. Yeah. And again, you're talking there about creating a perimeter and a boundary. This brings to mind, the, again, the, the, the theories of, of uh, Patrick Jackson and his, his orbs and his spheres that they're actually utilising mm. ghosts and hauntings and spheres to, again, keep people away from sensitive or dangerous or, or 
Well, I'm glad you made that point because the other thing I was going to say, which I forgot to say, is yeah, there's potentially this angle that it's humans, it's you know, deep black yeah. programs, you know, military, whatever, doing doing this with psychotronic weaponry, preventing people from accessing stuff. But what if also there's the whole crypto terrestrial angle, and you know, yeah. whatever these beings or vehicles are that people are seeing are are uh, a civilization that's always been here. Um, to the, you know, they're just hiding from us because actually we're a danger or a threat to them. They've got minimal numbers, et cetera, but actually they're, they're a hidden crypto terrestrial race of beings. Perhaps it's their technology we're seeing. Again, this is highly speculative. There's no, there's no evidence you know, that we can just pick out and say, this is definitely what's happening. But I think it's interesting to have these conversations. And uh, like you say, we're all about trying to pick up patterns and, and looking at those threads and tugging upon those in this, this podcast. And that's, that's hopefully what we're doing. Yeah. So again, if anybody out there has any experience of, of alien big cats or of the black dog or, or again, any of these significant areas where there are these well-known legends and this history and, and this, this um, yeah, this culture of fear perhaps grows up around them. We're more than happy to hear from you and share, share your experiences with us as well. Yeah. Um, Definitely. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Um, my mind's gone blank, Ash. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought maybe we'd touch upon... Um... Some of the you mentioned Skimwalker Ranch earlier on in the yeah. episode, so I thought maybe we could touch upon. We've covered quite a lot of UK, but I thought maybe we could just touch upon some potential links. Again, talked about the mechanism and what this might mean, and, and looking at those patterns that we're seeing emerge. There does seem to be a lot of crossover with some of the stuff experienced on Skimwalker Ranch as well, and and different areas that, that have a similar kind of uh, myth and legend around them. Yeah, exactly. The the the, the legend of, of of a skinwalker, of a dogman, and this is mm. one of the things that again the the bad guests or the the black dogs in in the UK have this ability to shape shift, to change form. Um, and again, you have to ask the question: Is this a a global phenomenon, a global trend that is ex, experienced and explained away in in whatever your local tongue and mythology is? Yeah, definitely. And just getting back to the black shark. Um, so depending on which part of East Anglia you're from, it appears in a different way, oh. which again shows that element of potential shape-shifting or something to do with the, the land or the location has a different, it manifests differently, which I think is interesting because in Suffolk, apparently, um, it, black shark is is believed to be fairly harmless if you leave it alone, whereas in other parts of East Anglia, like Norfolk, it's actually meant to be sort of devil kind of thing. But actually in, in Suffolk, it's um, seen as sort of half monk, half dog which is just again if you saw that that'd be pretty freaky wouldn't it it's got the body of a monk and the head of a hound um good lot but that really draws parallels to to the the types of sightings that are reported in in skinwalkers at the pentagon the idea of of you know going leaving the ranch going back to to virginia coming out of your house and seeing a a dog man standing outside your house smoking a cigarette i mean how utterly bizarre and strange and again we're talking about it's just ridiculous, isn't it? And yeah, Jacques Vallée talks say, about it's this. It's absolutely just... too, stu- too crazy, too strange, too woo. Um, and the, the people who witnessed this were credentialed mm. intelligence military experts who, yeah. you know... Top, top level scientists. Not, not prone top, top to intelligence. these fights of fancy, probably, but wow. Yeah. But, you know, you, you do ha- you have these experiences. People have these experiences. People see things. It's strange. I'm, I always remember being... Um, Back when I was was a police officer, um, working uh, in one of my first police force I worked in was had a bit of rural and urban. Yeah. Uh, mainly spent our time in the urban area, but there was a bit of rural. And I remember two guys. Um, both of them were like proper tough, roughly toughy. One of them was yeah. ex-squaddy. Uh, you know, they would never ever admit to seeing things, but they were adamant. They were out on patrol one night and saw 
a white horse just float in front of their <laughs> patrol vehicle, literally just float across the, 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 the country lane. And what was interesting was this occurred on White Horse Lane. And when you go wow. back in the history, you know, I, I'm done it. I haven't looked at the history, but where yeah. does that name come from? There must be a reason for it. Now, some people might say, oh, you know, it was nighttime. They were tired. It was some sort of like collective hallucination or something like that. And the auto-suggestion because they know they're on yeah, White Horse. Exactly. The creates that image. And, but, but they saw something. What was that? I don't know. But the fact these guys, like I say, you would never, if someone said, oh, so-and-so uh, has seen a UFO, so-and-so seen a ghost, you would never have put it down for these two the guys. Because they're the least likely people to admit it because they'd be the first ones ribbing people, taking the mic. Uh, and they were like, no, we definitely saw something. You could see vis- visibly, you know, they were shaken and disturbed by what they'd seen. Um, so, yeah, you know, you've got this police officer in, in Shooters, Shooters Hill Shooters that saw Hill, this, yeah. this cheater jump on the bonnet of their car. So uh, for these professional people to come forward and say, this is what they've seen, um, takes courage, you know, takes guts to do that because you are going to get ridiculed, particularly if you're in a policing environment. You know, I've worked in, in that for many years and, yeah, you've it's got to have It's the most rational of the rational, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, but you've got. But likewise, you you have a joke. You you know you take the mick out of each yeah. other. It keeps you going. You know you're dealing with some horrible stuff. So you you kind of need to um, need to have yeah, that, that black humour atmosphere, part of it, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah, part it's of very the similar in the military as well. Yeah. Um, so for them to come out and say it is, you know, there has to be something there. Incredible. That's a bit, I, I'm glad you've shared that one with us. Wonder no, how there's more. Don't worry. There's more. <laughs> <laughs> don't want to get them all out in one episode. Then. No, that's it. Let's save save those for later. Marvelous. Absolutely incredible. So we are. Closing up on the hour mark, is there anything else you want to cover off on this one, Ash? I don't think so. I think it was just to really round up what we've what we've discussed. The fact that yeah, there probably is a flesh and blood breeding population of real life big cats out there that are completely normal and um, nothing to be overly excited about. It's, yeah. It'd just be interesting. It'd be nice for them to actually be acknowledged, so perhaps they can get the conservation aspects. Farmers can protect their livestock properly, and people can understand that you know they're out there, but actually they're they're relatively harmless, and we can manage that properly. I think there should be some acknowledgement from officialdom that that is the case. Um, we haven't seen that. If anything, yeah. we've seen we've seen uh, attempts to kind of divert away and blame, like I say, yeah, <laughs> blame a ravenous fox. I mean, this yeah. is just bonkers. Um, so yeah, I think there's that angle. There is definitely. I, I think there's enough evidence out there to suggest there is a there is a yeah. a substantive breeding population of large big cats in the UK, and then secondly, uh, the more interesting there is there is another angle of the more supernatural, the more kind of um, yeah, yeah, I don't even know how to describe it. yeah supernatural these, these ones that carry around cats. our paranormal paranormal exactly. umbrella yeah hundred <laughs> percent so I think yeah just just put it in two little boxes there and um, and that second one. Again, that tails off, and we've touched upon numerous threads you can tug out there around the other aspects of the phenomena it, it bleeds into. I think there's a really interesting point there that we 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 sort of drop these into these two categories here: the the, the flesh and blood, the skin and bones of these these yeah breeding populations of, of big cats, and then we've got that more paranormal and, and perhaps you know more out there aspect of of some of these sightings. But again, even for me, there are parallels there to be drawn in that we have this default position that these things can't be real these mm. black cats these panthers no 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 these it's easier to deny than it is to accept yep. even in the face of dna evidence to state that we've got dna from a, a, a big cat in the uk and so again i think there's just a lesson there in again for us all to be careful of of it's really easy to 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 believe one element or not the other but again, this 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 there, there seems to be a, at what point do we get to that tipping point, that weight of evidence? What needs to happen 
you know, it's it's the classic UFOs landing on the White House lawn. At what point does somebody in the UK government administration yeah. say, yes, these things are here? And like you said, we then are able to do that conservation element, that protection for the the the, the livestock owners. And again, I, I think about this from an insurance company, you know, what, how, do, how do they manage these types of claims? Because they will be the ones that are, that are yeah. paying out on these claims. So there's an interest in there from them to do that as well. No, but you're at absolutely the same right. Time, you know, there's this element of those ones that sit outside the the, the normal framework of, of flesh and blood. No, hundred percent. Yeah, I think you've you've made some really good points there. Totally agree. It's uh, it's an interesting topic, and, I, and I'm not sure we're going to get any any sense of uh, official recognition. But for me, for someone that's had a background in policing, and obviously evidence is really key for me personally. There's there's more than enough evidence there to to suggest I would say beyond reasonable doubt that these things are out there. Uh, the fact that there's DNA evidence been been found. I think this was hair that was found on a barbed wire fence or something. Where yeah. one of these things have been spotted. Um, I mean, you know, if you were trying to um, trying to yeah, uh, build a case against a convicted person, saying, "Well, that person was there at that time and killed this person," obviously yeah. in this case, it's an animal, that'd be enough to convict. Um, yeah, you know, you've got witness testimony, eyewitness testimony, you've got DNA evidence. That would that would be enough evidence there to to formulate a strong case. So why are we not seeing it when it comes time. to acknowledging these these animals? Yeah, a really interesting point that there is this. Yeah, not quite a double standard, but a a, a different standard that's needed and required hmm. for this. Yeah. Super. Well, with that, we will start to draw episode A, B, C's and D's to a close. One thing I realise we haven't touched upon, but we'll certainly come back to, and I want to just draw our attention to, is the wonderful work of Paul Sinclair. Mm-hmm. Well, he's yep. a little bit further north and east than me in Yorkshire, but he's just released a, a film on, it's available on Amazon at the moment, called Wolflands. So I would encourage people to go out and watch that. I haven't had a chance to yet, but once I have done, we'll certainly talk about it. I didn't realise it was out because I, f- I follow his YouTube. But I haven't had a chance the last few weeks. Just so it must... in the last day or two. Has, has oh, well, that's why then. So, I f- yeah. yeah. I saw the promo clip he released a couple of months back and it does look really exciting. I know he's been working on it for several years. Um, promises to be amazing, I imagine. And there's also another one as well. Um, I think links back to... I think it's actually the guys that, that found this DNA evidence that you were referring to. There's one called Panthera Britannia. Yep. Um, I, again, haven't seen it. I didn't realize it was out, but it is actually out now. And I think you can get that on Amazon Prime. So what we'll do, we'll drop the links to all of these in the episode description. And hopefully, before the next episode, we'd have been able to watch one or two, or one or both of the episodes. <laughs> we'll, we'll one each. Yeah. <laughs> we'll give extra feedback on those. But again, yeah. there's always more information out there, always more to go hunting and looking for. Um, and before we draw to a close, I'd just like to say a couple of, of special thank yous. First of all, uh, Nick, aka Infinite Spark on Twitter. We asked in one of our earlier episodes for people to come out and share their UFO sightings. Nick, thank you for sharing yours with us. Uh, absolutely amazing. Um, we will talk. I know we will meet at some point this year, Nick, so we'll talk in more detail about that then. And also uh, Mick, who has been a, a big follower and is, uh, of the podcast, a big supporter of us so far, and has shared some of his um sightings and events that he's experienced so thank you both of you again everybody out there we keep sharing with us keep telling us your information i also want to draw your attention to a wonderful um appearance that we were we had the good fortune of making with our good friend Vinny, aka disclosure team so we both appeared on his youtube channel unfortunately ash was deep undercover and was recording from a deep underground military bunker just outside dulce new mexico <laughs> so his audio quality wasn't the greatest for it but again i encourage you all to go out there and, and have a listen to that and thanks huge thanks Vinny, again for 
having us on there and for some really good stimulating conversations, particularly around crop circles. I've been reading all of Karen uh, Alexander's work ever since because I realized it was an area I was a bit out of touch with. So thanks, Vinny. Um, and again, I will be attending the Awakening exhibition in Manchester at Bowler's Exhibition Centre between the 25th and the 27th of August. So if anybody out there is also attending, let me know. It'd be good to meet up, good to have a chat. And again, we have to have a huge thank you to our friends Calling All Beings, Nathan, DJ and Deb. As I announced at the start of the podcast, we are now part of the Calling All Beings network, along with Nathan, DJ, Deb, Leah Prime, um, our good friend Frank, the UFO thinker as well. So yeah, tune in to us on Calling All Beings as well. Ash, anything from you? I realise I've just talked for about ten minutes nonstop. <laughs> no, that's no, fine. I just thought the only other event worth mentioning that we're uh, we're both going to be at hopefully is the Minicon in Manchester um, on the fifteenth of October. So it'd be really cool to meet people and uh, yeah, share some stories. Yeah, absolutely. Again, by uh, the, the Minicon in Manchester, hosted by our good friends Ash, the other Ash, Ash Ellis, and uh, and Greg as well. So yeah, we look forward to seeing you there, if not before. Yeah, check out their podcast, Pursuit of the Paranormal podcast. Again, really, really interesting podcast. Cover a lot of different topics and um, intermingled and interwoven uh, topics are surrounding this. So, yeah, they're really good guys and uh, have some really good guests on as well. Yeah, they've just, just, just done a really good series on haunted uh, pubs and bars. So, uh, mm. I'm, I'm hoping to go visit and a few of those. <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff. So, where can people find you, Davey, just if they want to reach out? Yep. So, if they want to reach out and meet me, they can uh, find me at the Davy Johnston on Twitter or elsewhere, Davy Johnston on Facebook or on Instagram. I'm Davy Johnston or DJ Yoga. And uh, how about you, Ash? Yeah, so people can reach out to me on, I nearly called it Twitter, but it's X now, isn't it? It's going to take me a long while to uh, remember that. Um, yeah, my handle on there is at UK underscore UAP. And if you want to reach out to the podcast, um, Twitter, X, oh, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it, it's at the mechanism pod. And you can email us as well. And the email address is themechanismpod at proton.me. Uh, and as DJ said, um, not with DJ, well, you are DJ, but <laughs> I am DJ. not the DJ. Yeah. DJ. As Davey said, um, yeah, reach out to us. If, you know, if you've got some accounts or you know this has been of interest to you, you've got some really exciting, interesting uh, stories to share with us or things you've encountered, then, then please, we'd love to hear about it. And um, yeah, look, look forward to uh, hopefully meeting some of you at some of these events we've mentioned. Any final thoughts? Just keep keep an open mind, but not so open that the wind blows through. That is going to become my catchphrase. <laughs> mantra. Men- yeah, I mentioned yeah. it when we met with uh, with Vinny, so I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna round out with that one. Keep an open mind, but not so open that the wind blows through. I can't be that, so I'm just gonna say thank you for your time. Uh, thanks for the listeners, and we will see you on the next episode. 